let's think about this story of the prodigal son. So um, what I would like to do is really take this story and look at it from the angle of the three characters in the story. Um, there are lots of uh, traditional interpretations and there are also lots of sort of newer interpretations of this story. But I think if we just look at what the text says and um, what it says about each individual character in this story, I think we can pull a few things out that um, should speak to us. And so I'd like to start by <clears throat> looking at the father, but to set the context of this story, um, this, is in, this is the last two-thirds of the 15th chapter of Luke. And the first two-thirds, the first third, rather, begins with two other lost things. And so first, Jesus tells them of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and loses one, and he goes and finds the one, and he calls his friends together saying, rejoice with me for the sheep that was lost has been found. And then he tells of a woman who has 10 gold coins or silver coins, and they, she loses one. And she lights the lamp and sweeps the house and searches high and low and finds this coin that's been lost. And she calls together her friends and says, rejoice with me for I found my lost coin. And then we see the story of the father with two sons. And so we've been doing um, math with the kids, homeschool stuff. And uh, the progression of these things demonstrates the significance of these things. It goes from one one hundredth to one tenth to 50%. And it goes from being a sheep to a coin that could have bought a lot of sheep to a son, which is pretty much irreplaceable. So Jesus is amplifying the value as he reduces the number of things that are lost here. And so don't lose sight of that as we step into this narrative and into this parable because um, Jesus is focusing it down to something very important here. And so we start off with a father that has two sons. And what we know about this father is really based on the interaction with this younger son. And so we see that he does what is asked of him by this younger son. That request was um, pretty unheard of, pretty bold, pretty rude, pretty demanding. Um, he basically told his father, I wish you were dead so that I could have my inheritance. And the father, we don't ever see him bristle or take offense at this. We just see him divide his um, property between the two Two children. Now, the older son, being the first first son, would have gotten a larger share of that property, um, probably in the neighborhood of two thirds. Usually, it was the half of the property goes to the oldest one, and the rest of the property is divided between the remaining children. But in this situation with two sons, it probably would have been two thirds to one third. In any event, it's a significant amount that he asks of his father, and his father gives it to him. Um, he then turns around and 
packs it up and hits the road to go sow his wild oats. Um, we see that he, um, we see the father in his willingness to meet the request of his son. Um, he, he does what is asked of him. We also see later on as the son returns, we see the father feel compassion. We see him run, embrace, kiss, restore. He restores him uh, both symbolically and in reality with a, a ring and a robe and shoes. And he calls for a celebration. <clears throat> that word celebrate is a little different than rejoice. Um, it, it implies sort of an all out full celebration. Rejoice is kind of a little cocktail party. Celebrate is kind of the big bash. Um, and I think it's important because the end of verse 10, right before we start here, Jesus talks about um, the joy before the angels. That language is important. There is joy before the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. Well, that joy that the angels are witnessing over the repentant sinner is obviously the joy of the fathers. It's the joy of the Trinity over that repentant sinner. And the angels get to see that. So the rejoicing versus the celebrating, it's a, it's a significant thing to notice here. So that's a little bit of the father's character. We'll come back to him. But now we move to the son, the prodigal son. He is uh, sort of selfish. He's irresponsible. He's got some immature behavior that he's working through. Um, essentially, he says, I wish you were dead. And he goes off to sow his wild oats. And um, <clears throat> he feeds this self-indulgent, self um, absorbed lifestyle until the money runs out. Um, uh, a friend of mine at work um, likes to listen to music while he's cutting butter. I work at Frank's. I don't know if you all know that, but I, I work at Frank's part time. And um, he, he is in recovery. He's been sober for seven or eight years now. But this song came on and he said, this used to be my theme song back when I lived in San Francisco in New Orleans. The song was, we're going to party till the money runs out. And, um, and he said, it's not anymore, but it used to be. And so he kept cutting butter and we kind of laughed about that. But uh, that, that's kind of what this prodigal son does in this far off country. He, he parties till the money runs out. And we don't exactly know what reckless living is. We know what the older brother accuses him of as reckless living, but in any event, he's not using the gift of his inheritance like he should. And it's not until out of dire necessity he runs out of money, he um, is faced with this land where there's a famine and there's not even enough for people to be charitable towards him, and he takes this job that would be absolutely reprehensible for any good upstanding Jew. He, he takes this job feeding pigs. And he realizes that he's hit rock bottom. He realizes this is not the future I had envisioned for myself 
when he catches himself looking at the pods that he's feeding the pigs, thinking, hmm, those are looking kind of tasty. Um, the slop bucket is looking pretty good to him. And he says, wait a minute, I'm not, this is not, I'm not living my best life. This is not who I'm supposed to be. And the reality of that rock bottom sets in on him. And so he makes a decision. He says, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to go home and throw myself on the mercy of my father. Um, At the very least, I know that he'll take me back as a hired hand. Even if I've offended him so much that, that he doesn't want anything to do with me as a son, surely he'll hire me back as a laborer. And so he begins this journey home. Now, where was he? We don't exactly know, but we know it is a far away country. He didn't get there in 10 minutes, and he's not going to get home in 10 minutes. And I don't know if you've ever, I have, but I don't know if you've ever been in the wrong and had to go to somebody to acknowledge that you were in the wrong and apologize and seek forgiveness. But the days, hours, minutes that lead up to that conversation are not pleasant ones. They are full of anxiety, full of uncertainty, full of not knowing how this conversation is going to go. And he has days, maybe weeks, of journeying home to think about this conversation that's coming. That's sort of breezed over in this story, but he undoubtedly has been in some inner turmoil as he is journeying home to throw himself on the mercy of his father. So pride is out the window and he heads for home. He doesn't know what his father's going to say and he's not real sure how it's all going to go down. Now I've heard sermons that talk about how the father would wake up early and go up on the roof and look out to see if he saw the son coming home. And I think that's a really nice, um, sympathetic notion, but there's no evidence of that here. All, all we know is that daily work is continuing. The, the older brother's out in the field. We have to assume the father is doing whatever it is that he needs to do as far as harvesting, planting, maintaining, all of the things that go on with a homestead, a, a household, keeping a household together. We've got to assume all that work is going on and, and continued in the son's absence. But it doesn't mean the father wasn't still hopeful. It doesn't mean he wasn't still grieving the loss of that son. It doesn't mean that he had completely given up. But there were no cell phones. Mail was written on leather skins and really hard to come by. So there was no word at all about what happened to this son. He probably hadn't given up completely but he probably was pretty well resigned that this son was dead, or at the very least, wasn't coming back. I don't know if you've ever lost anything. Um, 
and you just kind of can't shake the feeling that you might still find it, but you're pretty sure it's gone. Well, when we were moving, um, we had a bunch of stuff, especially books. We have lots of books, but uh, a bunch of stuff that ended up in a storage unit. And I would go periodically and make changes with the storage unit. And um, most of it was stuff that was either seasonal stuff, clothes and, and Christmas and that kind of stuff, or it was stuff that we were finished with and it was going back in there. And so we would kind of trade things out. Well, one day I went to the storage locker and the lock was gone. And I looked at the other storage lockers and all those locks were gone. And I thought, uh-oh. And I opened it up and it was not the disaster that I thought it was gonna be. I imagined everything torn apart. Um, but it was obvious that somebody had been in there and rifled through some things. And um, interestingly enough, the one that was Bibles and prayer books, they didn't touch that box. <laughs> so somewhere they had uh, some fear of the Lord in their robbery. But uh, I couldn't really tell that anything was missing. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I found uh, they didn't touch the mint julep cups. They didn't touch things that would have had obvious value that were in storage. But I, I just I felt very violated by that. And um, a couple weeks later, I was invited to go duck hunting. And so I went back to the storage unit to get the blind bag that had duck calls in it that I'd had since I was a child and all, you know, kinds of... Uh, a range finder and all kinds of stuff and just whatever you might need in a duck blind and couldn't find it. Um, it was gone and it, it was pretty sure it was right up by the front. Pretty sure it had enough value to where it was something they would have grabbed and left and I, I just didn't notice that it was missing until I went to go look for it and it wasn't there. And you know, I still hold out hope that as we're unpacking boxes that might appear, but I'm pretty sure it's gone. Well, that holding out hope, but being pretty sure it's gone, that's only just a fraction of what that father must have been feeling. This son is probably dead. Um, probably not coming back. And so as he wakes up every day, sure, he, he hopes and expectations that the son will appear, but he can't be too sure. He's still got to keep putting one foot in front of the other on his own life in making progress. And the son, in the meantime, is putting one foot in front of the other on his journey of repentance to his father. And as they come together, what we see is this beautiful reunion where he says what he's, he, he, he declares what he says he's gonna say. He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not, I just, I, I'm really not worthy to be a hired hand, but take me back as a hired hand because I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm sorry. And the father won't hear it. He just says, quickly, bring the fattened calf, bring a ring, bring a robe, put shoes on his feet. Let's restore my son, who I thought was dead, and now he's alive. And so they begin to celebrate. That word celebrate is four times. Twice when the son shows up, and twice when the older brother appears on the scene. So now the older brother He's out working. He's doing his job. He is laboring in the fields with the hired hands, the servants. And he hears this celebration. And he says, what's going on at, at home? And the servant says, oh, 
your brother's back and your father's killed the fattened calf. And so they make their way back up to the house and the older brother pouts. The older brother um, refuses to go in. He refuses to participate in the celebration over the return of his brother. And so, and I imagine this went on for a little while. And the father eventually says, you know what, I'm going to go talk to him. And he comes out and he says, why don't you come in and join the party? And the, the older brother says, really? He says, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. And yet you never even gave me a goat. The things we have value in these days are a little different, but you never even gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. And the father, again, the father demonstrates this compassion that we see over the return of the prodigal son. We see this same compassion, but in a different, even perhaps more heartbreaking way with the older brother. He... um, he says, the older brother says, um, as he continues his unfounded um, accusation, he doesn't know where his younger brother has been. He just knows that he's been off, living large. And he says, um, this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes. Wait, what? That, that's a potentially true, potentially a lie, but there's no way that he could know that. And in anger, he's very rude to his father. And the father doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't come to the defense of anything. He just states the truth that the older brother doesn't even realize. The truth that he states is really pretty heartbreaking. He says, all that is mine is yours. You could have done anything you wanted with any of this. It's all yours. But it's fitting to celebrate because your brother was dead and he's now alive. He was lost and he's now found. And that's where, you know, scene, the whole script sort of the movie trails out, it's over. That's all we know about this story of the prodigal son. But if we stop and think about what's going on with this older brother, well, this older brother is um, duty driven. He is, focused on his obligations and he's lost sight of the blessings that he has right there. He is um, faithful, dutiful, and bitter. Faithful, dutiful, and bitter. And his heart is in the wrong place. He is duty blind and misses the blessings and the benefits of his faithfulness. He doesn't know that he has the right to all that is there. He has yet to live into his full sonship because he's still just working for his dad. He's not seeing it as working for a bigger thing or taking advantage of a bigger thing. And and I think we have to be careful because many of us as Christians can be faithful, good, dutiful believers. We can be good followers and um, 
faithful Christians and we can lose sight of the abundance and the blessing that God wants to give us in this life right now um, because we're too busy just trying to do the right thing or we're too busy looking at somebody else saying hmm, thank God I'm not like them that judgmental, that judgmental, critical spirit that comes when we're pretty sure we're right is what Jesus is cautioning us against here. And we just have to be careful. We have to be aware. And the other side of that is no better. The prodigal son is no better because he realizes his inheritance. He realizes that he can take hold of this inheritance. Um, he realizes that we'll use a big... Uh, popular word that he's been saved but yet he takes all of that as an occasion for his own self-indulgence he doesn't use that certainty he doesn't use that inheritance for blessings he doesn't use it for the benefit of himself and others he just squanders it and we have to be careful that way too uh, my systematic professor um, was fond of saying that um, we have to be careful to make sure that we're not behaving as if we've got good fire insurance. We're assured that we're not going to hell so we can do whatever the hell we want to, was how he followed that up. And um, if we look, that's the other side of this story, is... Um, he sees that his own selfishness, his own sinfulness, we'll just put the word on it, it is what it is, his own sinfulness is taking him far from God, taking him far from his Father, and the only way to get back is to go back, trust in the Father's mercy, and apologize, repent, change his ways. And in that repentance, we see um, immeasurable mercy from the Heavenly Father. The beauty of this story, in my opinion, the beauty of this story is that everybody can relate somewhere to the older brother, to the prodigal son. Everybody can find places or times in their life, even right now, where we are in a far country we are not using the blessings that we've been given for the building up of the kingdom. And every one of us, if we're being really honest, can probably look around and say, well, at least I'm not like him. Better than they are. And neither one of those is the right attitude. But the beauty of the story is that God desires, God longs for all of us to come to him in that repentant posture so that he can restore each of us. He can bring us back to that place of our uh, rightful position as sons and daughters, as um, kings and priests, as um, faithful ministers and stewards of the grace that has been shown us. And that is where nobody escapes in this story. If you're good, be careful that you're not too good. And if you're bad, turn around and go back because God's waiting for you to come home.
He's waiting for you to come home. And when he does, when you do, he will restore you with a kiss, with a ring, with a robe. He's waiting. We all have those places. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this story. And I thank you that your mercy never fails. That there is joy in heaven before the angels by you over every sinner who repents. Lord, show us the places in our lives where we need to make changes. Um, Lord, show us the places in our lives that we need to um, return home to you. And Lord, show us where we may have some of that hardness or heart, or we may have some of those seeds or roots of bitterness beginning to emerge. And Lord, help us to yield those to you, that they would be washed over by your grace and your love. And Lord, redeem us, restore us, and equip us and use us that we can be your agents and your vessels of your grace and your love in this broken and hurting world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.